Hey, you guys, I want to let you know about Book of the Month, an exciting service that helps readers discover great new books while also promoting the work of emerging authors. Every month, the editorial team at Book of the Month reads through hundreds of new titles. They do the curating for you. They narrow it down to five to seven of the best new books on the market, and you get to choose your Book of the Month. To sign up, just visit bookofthemonth.com. And for a limited time, you can get your first book for just $9.99 by using the offer code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. I should add that Book of the Month recently launched curated audiobooks in addition to hardcovers, so members have options. You can choose one or the other, either the hardcover edition or the audiobook. And if you pick the audiobook, you can download it and listen to it right there in the Book of the Month app. My latest pick is a novel called Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez. It tells the story of a forgotten art star of the 1980s who died tragically and whose life and work and memory are later unearthed by an art history student. This is right up my alley. I can't wait to read it. So if you want to sign up for Book of the Month, remember, go to bookofthemonth.com and for a limited time, Get your first book for just $9.99 by using the code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. One more time, that's bookofthemonth.com. Use the code CHIRP and get reading. Hey, you guys. Today's episode is brought to you by the Litbreaker Ad Network. Litbreaker brings together the finest literary communities on the web, with breakout brands, publishers, magazines, and other advertisers. It's an ad network for book people, for publishers, for authors, and for literary content providers. The Litbreaker ad network serves 5 million ads per month to nearly 1 million unique readers for dozens of happy advertisers. Do you run an online magazine or blog? You should check it out. Are you a publisher? Are you an author? Do you need to get the word out about a book? Uh, or do you need to get the word out about a product or service that would appeal to intelligent, bookish people? Look no further. Litbreaker bridges the gap between advertisers and the literary and pop cultural websites where their target customers spend their time. Visit litbreaker.com for more information. It's the very best way to reach book people online. It just is. That's litbreaker.com. Go there. Tell them I sent you. It's an advertising network for book nerds. Go and advertise on it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is a casual conversation recorded under semi-formal pretenses. This is not entirely what I expected. Thanks for listening. My name is Brad Listy, and I'm sitting here in my office in Los Angeles. I hope you're doing well. Happy Groundhog's Day. Uh, happy Super Bowl Sunday. And if you're actually listening to this on Super Bowl Sunday, while the Super Bowl itself is playing, while uh, grown men in gladiator costumes, destroy themselves in a series of uh, hyper-violent collisions. I think that is uh, interesting and statistically unlikely in the extreme. Actually, uh, actually, what I'm now envisioning is you sitting on your couch, 
cross-legged, half watching the Super Bowl on a uh, flat-screen television that has been muted while this podcast plays in a stereo surround sound, and you gently flip the pages of a contemporary book of poetry. (laughs) Can you see that? Can you visualize that scenario? My guest today is Bill Cotter. He has a new novel that... hear that welcome back you understand what that is it's the theme song to welcome back carter or welcome back cotter i should say to pronounce it correctly because uh, my guest is bill cotter you get that i couldn't resist i apologize i don't usually uh, do audio gags like that involving music but uh, I could not resist this one. I tried really hard, but uh, nostalgia won out. I love that show. I used to watch it as a kid, which uh, seems, you know, you, I was watching old clips of it online as I was preparing for this uh, production, and it looks old. It makes me feel old. <laughs> I mean, you know, you watch the the old clips, and it looks like it's from another century, which, of course... It is. So Bill Cotter, the author, is my guest. He's got a new novel due out from McSweeney's on February 11th, 2014. It is called The Parallel Apartments. The Parallel Apartments. Uh, it's great to have Bill here on the program. We had a very good conversation that left me feeling uh, energized, surprised, and uh, spiritually nourished. There were twists. Uh, there were some turns. And all the way along, there was Bill talking with his uh, undeniable Southern charm. Uh, hey, if you want a free audiobook download, uh, you can get one right now from Audible. Just go to audibletrial.com slash other people. Once again, that's audibletrial.com slash other people. And uh, I also want to take a quick moment to plug the app. This show has its own official app, the official other people app. It's free. And it's the best way to listen. Here's why you need it, okay? Let me make my pitch. New episodes automatically upload to the app, so you don't have to do any uploading or plugging in or switching devices or any of that. You can also download episodes to listen to offline. So if you're traveling or you don't have access to Wi-Fi, whatever, you can download episodes right there inside the app and listen that way. And uh, best of all, and most importantly, Uh, You can access premium content and the show's full archives all via the app. So uh, what does this mean? It means that you uh, sign up for premium right there inside the app, and then for only $2 a month, you get access to everything. Every single episode, 2 bucks a month, that's it. Uh, It's an incredible bargain. I'm not saying it's the bargain of the century, but I am saying uh, it's the bargain of February 2014. (laughs) So if you don't have the app, please go get it right now. Download it. It's free, and it's available for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. And then once you have the app, uh, please sign up for premium. I would appreciate that. Okay? So uh, what else? Uh, I'm recording this episode before the Super Bowl, obviously, before the game itself. So uh, I suppose I should make a prediction. I think it is uh, the Denver Broncos who will prevail. I think it's Peyton Manning's year. I just have a feeling. Uh, But I do think it's going to be close. So I'm going to say Broncos 24, Seattle 20. Broncos 24, 
Seattle 20. My guest today, once again, is Bill Cotter. His new novel, The Parallel Apartments, is out from McSweeney's on February 11th. It's a great pleasure to have him here, and I really hope that you enjoy our conversation. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Bill Cotter, and his book, once again, is called The Parallel Apartments. I'm at my parents' house in Austin, Texas, and um, I am in their bedroom where it seems like I can't hear the wind chimes, which were distracting me before, Um, and I'm on their bed, and they're out of town. They're in New Orleans. Oh, really? Okay. So I think this is the first time I've ever done one of these where the person I'm talking to is uh, on their parents' bed. (laughs) (laughs) And hopefully the last. Yes. Are you luxuriating or are you sitting? I mean, you know, like what's what's happening? Give us some indication of your posture. I can't luxuriate too much because it's a, my mother's really neat, and uh, so I can't really put my feet up on the bed or anything like that. Okay. Um, but I'm trying to be as comfortable as I can. Um, That's good. I want you comfortable. Okay, yes, I am comfortable. So are you and it's fl- very neat and clean right around me. I can appreciate that. I'm not. I mean, I I I I am a great appreciator of neatness and cleanness. I'm not as neat and clean in my day to day as I wish I were, but I think I have mm-hmm. I have pretty high standards. I'm I'm very impressed by people who can maintain great order and uh, cleanness. I don't know. I don't I, know. I am too. I, I'm not one of those people. Um, I'm I'm my house is just an absolute disaster all the time. Well, see, this and, is the uh, thing. Like when I was a kid, I would go over to my friends' houses, and certain of my friends' houses were messy. Um, and mm-hmm. I always felt, and, and more to the point, they smelled weird. <laughs> and it was always like, oh man, I got to go to so-and-so's house. Like his house always smells weird. It smelled like there was something rotting. There's food issues or something. It's, right, right. I think my whole life I've been trying to avoid that. I don't want to be the person whose house smells weird. <laughs> you know what? I think I am that person that, <laughs> whose house smells weird. And, uh, um, uh, I would just wonder, I mean, what is it? Is it like onion soup? Is it like cat <laughs> shit? Is, what is it? What is it? But no one will tell me. I think you just need to invest in some uh, incense or some sort of uh, scented candle arrangement. Something like that. Something like that. I can't stand Febreze, so it won't be, it will not be, it will not be Febreze. Yeah, Febreze. I've got to do something. Febreze, it's a, Febreze strikes me as being uh, toxic. I feel like there's something ominous about Febreze. Doesn't it? It's probably made by Monsanto or something. Yeah. yeah. But I think it's horrible stuff. Okay. So we've established that. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, are you originally from, I mean, are you a, a lifer in Austin? That's where you were born and raised? No, I was born in Dallas and then uh, lived in Texas uh, here and there until um, I was about mm, eight years old or so. And then we lived in Iran for three years. My dad had a, um, a job that was ancillary to the uh, uh, oil companies. And so we moved around in that country for a little while, then moved to New England. And in after that, I moved here and there after high school. And about 17 years ago, I think I finally found my way back to Austin where I've got relatives and or what, living in Austin for the first time, I guess. Um, and uh, I've been here ever since. And do, I do consider it home, my hometown. Okay, okay. So I want to go back to Iran because that strikes me as being interesting and unusual for somebody mm-hmm. um, raised in the States. So how old? You were, what, elementary school age when you were there? Yeah, I think I was um, third to sixth grade, I think. Yeah. All right. What was that? And that was 73 to 76. What kind of, memory, what kind of memories do you have of that? Almost nothing but good memories. I think that was the happiest time of my entire life. Um, 
I, I kind of had free reign. I could do what I wanted. I could run around the neighborhood. Um, I wasn't supposed to, but I, I did and could, I could and did. Um, and, uh, I had good friends there. I liked the school I was going to, which was an American, I mean, an international school with a bunch of American students. Um, uh, and I guess that was in, I just liked it. I was just happy during those years and I have a lot of good memories of it. Interesting. And how, how much immersion was there with the culture? Not too much. We really only, uh, intersected with the more westernized, uh, Iranians. Um, but, uh, there was some interaction like we'd have to, uh, buy groceries and vegetables and meat in the bazaar, which was, uh, um, what the real Iran was like, or at least that's how I imagined it. And, uh, um, that was, that was kind of a shock. That was kind of a shock. Okay. And so what um, was, what was like in this, like, I mean, forgive me for not having my history straight, but this was like right before things got hairy, right? Like, yes. Okay. Yes. We left, um, in 76, which was, I guess a year before, was it 77 or 78? Whatever the, um, the glorious revolution was, I think that's, is that what they called it? Um, or anyway, the, the ascension of the Ayatollah. And, 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 the, and the arrival of uh, Ben Affleck with a beard. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I did not see that movie and really, really should have. I, I heard that it was uh, um, uh, really true to life. I, I need to go see that movie. Yeah, I mean, I enjoyed it. I didn't. I thought it was. I mean, I didn't think it was all that, um, but I, I enjoyed it. You know, maybe, okay, maybe not as much as some, but uh, I did. Right, right. Definitely liked yeah. it. It's well. That's good to know. That's good to know. I I, I wonder if I would be extremely critical of it or, or, or what, how, how much it would jive with my memory. According to my parents, um, Bob and Kathy, uh, they thought it was, uh, just right on, um, really captured what it was like in Iran in the seventies. Okay. So, and what did your old man do? He worked for the oil companies or in an ancillary business? Yeah. He worked for uh, a carbon black company. Um, uh, and they just made carbon black. That was all they did. They they burned oil uh, and produced carbon. Uh, and their job, you know, I, I think it almost all went into tires. But anyway, they needed the oil. They needed it right nearby. So they there wherever there's an oil company, there's a um, a branch of Cabot Corporation, which is the company he worked for. And wait, so that's how uh, tires are made? Like you burn oil down into carbon black? Well, it's carbon black mixed with rubber, and that apparently okay. regular rubber just falls apart after a couple of years, and then uh, and then, but it, it, the addition of carbon black—it's like adding tungsten to steel. It just—I mean—to iron, it just strengthens it uh, uh, more than the sum of its parts. I did not know this. Yeah, it's I did, a very I did, technical I did fact. Know, yeah, I did actually know that tires were made of rubber. I didn't realize that they. Had, <laughs> they had, I'm. I'm. I'm uh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I'm gonna. There's gonna be some things that I tell you that you might already know, um, uh, but I did not know that you knew that tires were made of rubber. Well, no, I was initially prepared to just believe that they were entirely made of carbon black. <laughs> then you reminded me of something. Yes, that's, that's right. Like that's four. right. All right. So that's interesting. So, um, you know, your dad's working uh, essentially in the uh, oil business, I guess, mm -hmm. or some some in some capacity. That seems very Texan. Um, yes. You know, yes. That's, lots of people. I mean, that's like the that's the economy down there, right? Or largely the economy. It sure used to be. Um, I'm not so so sure how much it is anymore. Um, uh, but of course, the all the oil refineries are down by the 
down the, near the Gulf of Mexico, and uh, there's so many oil platforms out in the Gulf. So I think it, yeah, maybe, you know, I just don't know, but I think that it's still uh, a, um, a force in this state for sure. Oh, yeah, like in your life as a writer of uh, literary fiction and as a bookbinder, you don't, you don't find yourself heavily immersed in the inner workings of the uh, oil trade? <laughs> <laughs> no, not, not too much. Although uh, for the book I just uh, finished, um, uh, there is a, there's a character that used to work on the oil platform. So I did have to do a little bit of research and come up with the, uh, the offshore workers' uh, um, banter, what that would sound like. Yeah, well, and uh, I don't know if I succeeded at that or not. Well, but I mean, I'm sure you have probably a better idea of how to approximate it than most people would, right? You grew up around. Uh, it. Yes, I did. I did, and I have a, I have a, uh, I have a memory for how people talked. Um, I don't know how accurate it is, but I tried to reproduce that in the book. So here's a question for you, because obviously, uh, you know, you know, we, we all know that the the oil industry and the burning of fossil fuels is uh, problematic for the environment and whatnot. What? Um, <laughs> it actually is. I hate to break it to you. <laughs> oh, okay. Damn. <laughs> but no, because I think about this, you know, and it's not necessarily specifically related to, uh, you know, the energy industry. It's the, the energy industry is just one example. But um, in your decision to become a writer and in the way that you might assess the work that you do as a writer, um, do you think about its uh, impact – do you know what I'm saying? Like would it would it trouble you? Are you a person who would be troubled to make their living from – something that you felt might be contributing to uh, the demise of the planet? Oh, I feel pretty guilty, and I, I, but I still do it anyway. Um, uh, um, I'm worried about the, uh, this book, that it might have a, uh, a serious uh, detrimental effect on the, on the world. Um, <laughs> not really, but I am worried about this book. I don't know if it's going to be uh, well-received or not. Um, I'm terrified. Actually, you are. Uh, yeah, yeah. Mean, I'm like really the, worried about it. The reviews. I mean, then, like, I mean, I, I mean, I'm just trying to make sure I'm catching your drift correctly. Like, you're really worried mm -hmm. about the critical reception, or are you making a joke about worried about how it's going to impact the world? <laughs> no, seriously. I'm just I'm worried about the critical uh, critical reception. Is uh, I, I'm I've told myself I'm not going to read reviews, but I think that might be unavoidable. It's just it's uh, it's really devastates me when there's a bad one you, yeah um, it's hard to, i get i get weirded out i don't know how common that is but i get weirded out by it i oh. feel like it's a personal attack and i need to defend myself and yeah no it's, that never works it's common it's common I mean, I've, I've talked to a lot of authors on this show and have discussed this very thing and it's common and you know i think some people are more disciplined than others and some people are more uh i don't know able to uh, compartmentalize uh, than others but Nobody likes to read a bad review, and everybody likes to read. Yeah. Everybody likes to read a good review. You know. Yeah, yeah. I think you're. I think you're right. I hope there'll be a couple. Um, I, I personally, I don't like this book. Um, I'm not happy with the way it turned out, uh, um, and I don't know if that happens a lot to to the other author, authors that you've interviewed. It happens to me all uh, the time. I can tell you that. <laughs> um, the the uh, yeah. I just uh, I just don't know what to think. Um, I'm unhappy with the book. I don't think it turned out just like I wanted it to, but it was doomed from the start. I think, um, 
How so? Maybe I shouldn't say that. Well, I don't Maybe know. I shouldn't no, let's say talk. That. Let's go here because this might be, uh, you know, your honest interior feeling at least in this moment, and I think it's something that a lot of writers uh, might feel but not be willing to say. So I think it's a good thing to talk about because I've certain I've certainly had this feeling, you know, and I think it might stem from, and you can tell me if you agree or not. Um, a, a tendency towards perfectionism, you know, wanting to make sure that everything is in its right place and um, just having that nagging sense that it's not or never will be or, you know what I'm saying? Like, is Yes, that, is yes. That, is that how you are in your life uh, generally or is writing where it really manifests? Writing really. Uh, um, I'm not a perfectionist in any other way and I'm really not a perfectionist at, at uh, when it comes to writing. I get tired and I think, okay, God Damn it! Just let it go, and which mean which makes for a long editing process. Um, uh, this uh, this book took uh, I think fourteen months or something like that, which might not be that that out of line. Um, but that's back to your question, that's actually short. I mean, for, oh, is it really? Well, I mean, you know, so it depends. Uh, books have books have a, a wide range when it comes to incubation. You know, like I've sure. I've, I've had authors on this show that have worked on a book for a decade. You know, yeah, yes. Yes, I believe it. I believe it. Um, yes, uh, but anyway, I, to answer your earlier question, I my when I said it was doomed from the start, it uh, I decided to write about motherhood and women and uh, families, families of women, matriarchies, and I, I'm terribly worried that that's going to seem that's going to come off as arrogant that uh, um, I didn't pull it off. Um, that I shouldn't have written about women um, because I should because I know nothing about it, having never been one, especially a mother. Um, this book is much about a theme, and it is motherhood. Well, you know, but this is the, this is the gambit, okay? Because uh, first of all, I think that uh, it's a natural fear to have, considering um, that particular aspect of your book. But it's also the upside is huge because if you if you did succeed, or you do succeed for the lar- you know the larger majority of readers and particular and, and critics, particularly those who are female, then you, mm-hmm. then you come across as like, you know, a, a male writer of uh, extraordinary gifts who can write across gender, which many people <laughs> cannot do. Oh, wouldn't that be nice? Yeah, it's, um, it's if like it was received that way. It's like the, uh, and I mean, I don't know if this is a, a good comparison, but it's a similar effect, like the Wally Lamb thing, like she's come undone or whatever, you know, or, Oh, I remember that. I never read it. Yeah. I uh, I want to say I read one of his books, I'm, and it's not She's Come Undone. It's the other one, and I'm blanking on it. Oh, the really thick one with about the two schizophrenic brothers or something? Something like that. that. Yeah, yeah. I want to say he wrote women really well. But anyway, I, that's just w- what pops into my head. So, um, right. you know, I, I, I can totally relate to having that sense. Uh, I think uh, obviously there's a, there's an aspect of uh, courage involved in the fact that you're proceeding with publication. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I Uh, think so. It feels like, it feels like fear, but maybe it could be seen as uh, a kind of, a kind of fearlessness. Um, But I don't know. Yeah. Well, and, and I just, and to circle back um, because this is a point that maybe uh, I'm, I'm overly preoccupied with, but you know, it's the issue of volition, and it's the issue of what drives us to do this as writers, uh, or what drives people to do whatever it is that they do, and how they make that calculation. But like, obviously, you're a lover of books because uh, not only do you write them, but you've also sold them. Uh, you bind books, is that correct? Yes, yes. So I mean, you... I don't do so much anymore, but I, I was uh, I was a book restorer and binder for um, a good ten years, I guess. Yeah. So I mean, like, you're into it. 
and yeah, yeah. You, you made the decision. This is something you've gravitated towards. Like how much of a moral consideration was there as you were making this move into this particular line of work? Meaning writing? Yeah, writing, being interested in books, because, you know, I have this thing personally where it's like, I want whatever work I do to, to be a net positive. Uh, yes, yes. You know, and, and, and I, the thing is, is that I, I want to be careful not to, you know, I, it's hard for me to uh, begrudge people who do work that is a net negative, um, whether it's like on a, uh, at the level of climate or environment or whatever. Um, because I think a lot of people, they're just trying to make a fucking living. And, yes. You yes. Know, they're trying to feed their families and it's hard to begrudge somebody that because I, I understand those challenges, you know? Um, sure. But you know, it's, it's a real thing. And I think that, um, you know, hopefully writing is one of those things that for all of its ills and for all of the challenges that it presents for so many of us financially and otherwise, mm -hmm. um, that at the end of the day, it's a, it's a good way to spend your time and to, to make books, even if they're only read by 300 people, right. um, you know, that it stands to make the kind of deep impact, deep positive impact that, uh, one would hope their work can produce. Um, whether it's mm -hmm. whether it's literary work or other kinds of work, is that something that you think about? Yes, uh, it is. I, I I wonder sometimes if I if I should be doing what I'm doing, writing or uh, especially writing, um, or if I could be spending my time uh, in better ways. And a lot of times I'm uh, it's I, it's negative. I feel like I should not be writing uh, because I'm enjoying myself. I shouldn't be doing this. I should be doing something else. I should be back to my regular work. Um, I'm a uh, antiquarian bookseller, um, and which let's let, let's well, be honest, isn't that far afield from writing? I mean, you're still it, within. You're it's still, not. It's not. But you feel. But you feel that it's got a different. I mean, you you detect like a real difference in the way that you feel about the writing work versus the antiquarian bookselling, or is it just pure dollars and cents? It's kind of dollars and cents. Um, I feel some guilt writing that I don't know what that comes from, but. A lot of it, if I can make a living writing, then I would drop the uh, book dealing in an instant. I really don't like it very much. Um, it's uh, it's got its uh, um, odious qualities. What is it? Uh, just the, just sure. the, the salesmanship aspect, or having to sell? Yes, yes. I don't. I'm not a salesperson. I just can't call someone up and and say, "Hey, would you like to buy a, a thirteen thousand dollar book?" But I have to do that, <laughs> and I'm just not very. Just not very good at it. What's the market? Uh, for, what's the market for antiquarian books that are pricey like that? Like who's there? There, I guess like everything's got its niche uh, audience or, or a customer. Yes, base. yes. Um, apart from just uh, wealthy, wealthy bibliophiles, uh, it's mainly um, institutional libraries, the special collections, collections departments of uh, institutional libraries, um, and the ones that you know with large endowments and can afford to buy these kinds of books. Okay, and what I can't afford to buy them. No, neither can I. And I, and I got to say, this operates. That kind of thing operates. Um, you know, in contrast to I think uh, the way that I'm wired. You know, like I'm not a I'm not a hugely sentimental person. I never collect. I guess I collected baseball cards as a kid. But my question, mm -hmm. like, I can see how an institutional library would want to keep a record. But if you're like a private collector, you just right. have. What do you do with it? You have it on the shelf. Do you read it? I mean, it's like you can't touch it. It's worth $50,000 or whatever. You don't want to soil it. <laughs> yes, yes, so exactly. It's, so it's like this thing that you have that you can't really use. 
I don't know. I mean, I, I can see like a piece of visual artwork. You can at least hang it on the wall and like look at it. But mm-hmm. with, with a book, it's just on the shelf or it's in a glass case or something. Right, right. Um, it's. I think it's a matter of degrees. Uh, just these guys just have more money because I'm. I'm a book collector. I love books, and what's important to me when I'm when I'm thinking about buying a book that book that's out of my normal range of uh, what I can afford um, is I really love first editions of my favorite books. I mean, some of these are absolutely unobtainable, um, but uh, for more modern. Uh, um, work, especially works of fiction, there sometimes you can get them. You can get them. And something about having those, I don't know if it's, it might be attached to ego in some way, uh, but something about seeing the very first appearance, having contact with the very first appearance of, of a work that was a major influence in your life um, is, uh, uh, it's, it's delicious. It's a really delectable feeling. Okay, so uh, you feel close to the writer. Okay, I, I get that. And so, like, uh, you know, just to to draw on my past as a baseball card collector when I was a kid, like, uh-huh. what's the Mickey Mantle rookie of uh, of book collecting? Is there such a thing? Wow, uh, in every field, there there certainly is. I guess in there's a um, a field called modern first editions, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's almost all fiction and poetry and uh, drama from say the 1880s until now. Um, in terms of money, it's, it seems like it's often Ulysses, uh, the first edition of in 1922 of uh, um, Ulysses. Yeah. And then there's also um, Fitzgerald's, uh, what is that called? What is it? I, I never this, remember anything. I have a terrible of, memory. Me too. This Side of Paradise? No, it's, uh, uh, it was the one about, the, I think the Robert Redford starred in the movie version. Oh, The Great Gatsby? Yeah, that's it. I can't. <laughs> See what I mean? It's just awful. I mean, I, I carry three notebooks around with me to write things down in, and I'll just lose the notebooks. Oh, my God. I, I, it's terrible. <laughs> the great guy. Uh, so thank you for helping me out there. No, it's my pleasure. And uh, with regard to Ulysses in the first edition, is that the Sylvia Beach edition? Yes, exactly. That's okay. right. That's right. All right. The one that was published in Paris. And uh, that's a you know half-million-dollar book. There are three states of it. There's a an edition where I think there are 100 or 150 copies on certain kind of paper and then another one and then a more for the masses version. Uh, and the the most desirable ones are, you know, they're a million, half a million to a million dollars sometimes. You mean the ones that are mint, like mint condition? Yeah, really good ones, really good ones. Oh, that's interesting. So I guess, yeah, that makes sense. Ulysses would be, you know, the, the big fish if you're into collecting. And then um, just because you swim in these waters, and if we might have people listening who you know uh, might want to make an investment, uh-huh. if you could if you could try to handicap it, like what book could you get for an affordable price right now in first edition that you predict twenty five years from now is going to be worth uh, exponentially more than its current value? I would say uh, Cormac McCarthy first editions um, would be a pretty good bet. And, and how uh, much are, how much are those running for? Like, give me like. Um, I'm not quite sure what the numbers are right now, but I know that they've they've increased really quickly, um, uh, especially after all the pretty horses came out and all of his first editions sort of skyrocketed in price because um, he got so much exposure for uh, from that book, for that whole series. And uh, but I don't know the actual numbers. 
Okay. But if I was going to do that, I would buy I would buy his first editions. But like ballparking it, you can get a, a Cormac McCarthy first edition for under a grand. Oh yeah, certainly. Um, his first book, which I can't remember the name of, big surprise. <laughs> um, uh, that's that might be more, uh, especially if it's been signed. Okay, so okay, um, wait. Does that matter? Is it like does, does is it the author's best book in first edition that you want to get, or is it the author's first book in first edition? First book, yeah. That's that would be the most desirable one. Oh, that's interesting. Um, as a, as an investor, I mean, of course, as a collector, you get the one you like. Um, no, I'm talking uh, about pure investment. <laughs> pure money, yeah. The the first edition of anyone's uh, of anyone's first book, if they've. Uh, um, is going to be more valuable. Even stuff like, I mean, especially things like John Grisham, huge sellers, like the first edition of his first book, um, very expensive right now. Really? Yeah, it's surprisingly. And Daniel Steele's first book, um, first edition of that, that, quite valuable. Just stuff like this. You don't have to be, you know, Ulysses. I mean, you don't have to be James Joyce to... Uh, command a lot of money, or that guy who wrote the Great Gatsby, whatever his name is. That what? Is, what the hell is? <laughs> God, Jesus! Uh, <laughs> I really did forget it for a second there too. It's, it's all right. It's all right. I really, got, it's a senior moment. It happens. Oh yeah. Well, tell me, are you a writer also? Have you? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm a writer. I published a novel, and then uh, which is currently available in first edition, by the way, for a pit. Are you serious? <laughs> I mean, somewhere uh, out there, I'm sure on eBay. <laughs> But you did write a novel. I did. What's it called? I have to write it down. Hold on. My computer just ran out of juice, so I'm going to write it in one of the notebooks that I didn't forget. Yeah, no. What's the name of it? It's called Attention Deficit Disorder with a period after each word. Okay. And, and uh, much like you, with regard to the parallel apartments, I have uh, mixed feelings about it. It's a, Do you really? Like what? I, I don't know. Just I was young when I wrote it. I feel like uh, it's not as good as it could be. It's, it's, impo <clears throat> it's impossible to look back on an earlier work and... I mean, for me anyway, and not feel like you can see all of its warts. But I'm learning gradually and, and uh, to a degree by virtue of doing this show to accept it because I've talked to other authors about this. And uh, a, a lot of them have been kind enough to talk me down from the ledge and just tell me to right. just relax. You know, it's a book. Right. Well, sure. Uh, have you are you working on anything now? Yeah, I am. I've been I mean, I've yep. had like two, you know, I've written like two or three full novels uh, in the intervening years that I feel like have failed and just haven't realized themselves and I've abandoned them. And then oh, right. uh, I'm now working on another thing. Like I keep thinking I'm going to quit. And I just it's like the thing with writers. You can't quit. It just keeps you can't. It just yeah. keeps coming. <laughs> yeah, it really does. There might be dry spells, but the, it's it's always there. I have. Yeah, I've, I'm what I'm finding, I think, is that I have a long uh, or at least for this, whatever book it is that I'm working towards, it's a long process and, mm -hmm. uh, it would be nice if on the next one, if there is a next one after this one, that, uh, things could shorten. <laughs> okay. Uh, but you okay. know, I, I think some writers, they just, it takes a while to cook or some books just take a while to cook. It's the way that it goes. You have to sort of just let it be what it is. I think so. I think so. Yeah. Um, ideas can, uh, uh really, you might not, might not even know it, but they percolate for for quite a while before they really come out. Well, yeah, and like huh. sometimes it's just it's. I think it's a process of coming to grips with what it is that you want to say, whether you're either unaware of it or unable to admit it to yourself, or you know, uh -huh. there's a courage aspect. You know, like there's a. Uh, I just talked to an author recently. I think I was talking to Matthew Spector, and mm -hmm. uh, you know, it was either while we were doing the the interview or before it, but you know, it was talking about how. You know, he just got to the point where he basically just said "fuck it" and started writing what he really wanted to write with, like, you know, very minimal fear. 
Um, right. Which right. is hard. You know, it's a good place to get to. And I think it's a place that a lot of writers um, struggle to get to because there's always that like critic in your own head that's, uh, you know, micromanaging the situation. And, um, you know, you get to a place where you feel like you got nothing to lose. And that's a good place to be as an artist. I think so. I think so. I was just talking or emailing with a, a friend, this guy named Steve Adams. He's a superb essayist and a good novelist, too, although he has not published a, a novel yet. He, I imagine he will soon. But anyway, he was saying he got to a point where he uh, really did not feel any faith um, or uh, that his work had any authenticity to it and quit writing for several months um, and then decided, I'm just going to write what I damn well please. And uh, he, um, I don't think it was the first thing he started, but it, uh, one of them early on, he won a Pushcart Prize for it. Um, so it, uh, I think there's a lot to be said with, for that. Yeah. Well, I think so too. I mean, I think that's, that's what we, I think that's what everyone's trying to do. Uh, yes. Whether yeah. they know it or not. And, you know, it's just a matter of kind of getting there. And I take heart, you know, in the, in talking to people like yourself and other authors that are on this show and then just reading about writers, like this is, this is normal, you know, what, uh, yes. What yes. I'm going through. It's normal what you're going through with the book, you know, with your book about to drop and fearing the critical response. Like it's, it's not like this is some sort of, uh, you know, brand new revelation. I think it's been, it's been happening since people started publishing. <laughs> oh, sure. No doubt. No doubt. So, uh, I want to ask you about, uh, you know, I want to ask you further questions about book collecting and the people who are into this, because I think it's a weird, um, Oh God! What's the guy's name? What's the guy who directed? Now I'm forgetting. What's the guy who directed uh, Waiting for Guffman? Oh, uh, you know. Who I'm oh, about? geez. He does all, um, it's like the, it's a kind of subculture that he would maybe um, put in one of his movies. You know, these kinds of peripheral subcultures where you have these, uh, you know, these people who have a very passionate interest in something that uh, exists. Uh, you know, uh, sort of out there on the margins and. Oh yeah. Is there are there characteristics of people who are super into antiquarian books aside from having uh, disposable income that you can point mm -hmm. to, like temperament? Yeah, they're 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 kind of assholes. <laughs> um, I'm sorry to be so frank, uh, and I don't know how that's going to repercuss. Is that a, can you use that as a verb? I like um, that. I like that. I'll go with that. Repercuss. Yeah. Uh, so we'll see what happens with that. But generally speaking, they they're. They uh, um, they're a little condescending. Um, they always bitch about the prices. And I, I shouldn't say really everyone, but it seems like a disproportionate amount um, do so. Uh, and like there 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 are higher incidents of assholes in the rare book collecting world. Not I'm not talking about universities, but private collectors. Yeah. Um, than there is in the normal in the in the rest of the population. Okay, so this makes some psychological sense to me because you got to think like if you're a private collector, you've got all this money, uh, and you're like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to spend fifty thousand dollars on an right. on an antiquarian book that I'm going to stick in my library. Uh, what is that? What is that emblematic of? You know, like they're clearly buying it for its symbolic value to a degree. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think you know, and and you know. Stay with me as I try to psychoanalyze this, but you know, uh -huh. they're trying to kind of co-opt the intellectual and uh, psycho-spiritual greatness of this work of literature. <laughs> yeah, and they want to show it off. They want people to ask them about it, and so they can show them their incredible library. Yeah, and their first editions. Um, I mostly deal in early printed books and manuscripts and early printed stuff, like pre seventeen hundred. Um, so the collector, there are even fewer of those. And uh, um, 
they're difficult sometimes. Like diff- they in, are, in the negotiations? Yeah, yeah. And um, as a rule, I usually don't negotiate. If I don't want something, then fine. I don't want to set a precedent for being able to um, lower my price with uh, uh, just by um, browbeating me or something like that. I just don't want to do it. Well, no, you know, um, and let me interject because, like, this is something that I uh, that bothers me as well. I, like, just the, the the practice of you know asking high and then they go low and then you know the whole negotiation process. Right, right. It drives me crazy. Like, why do we do? Oh, that? I can't stand it. Just yeah. Tell me what you want, and then I'll either say yes or no, and vice versa. You know, like, why do we have right. to? Why do we have to play this game? And it's like. Uh, you know, it's unavoidable, at least in some or in most, uh, you know, money situations. You kind of yeah, yeah. You have to play the game, or you'll get taken. But like, it's so it's so much a like a, a part of my constitution to want to just say like, this is my bottom line. Let's go, <laughs> or not. You know? Did you did you grow up in a in a family that did a lot of bargaining? I imagine that I think of that as a European thing. Yeah, no, um, I, like we weren't. You know, no, I don't. I don't remember lots of bargaining. You know, my parents were not like. Super bargainy? Is that an adjective? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. They didn't go to the car lot and and just for fun let the um, talk the salesman down in the price of used car. No, I mean I do remember my dad taking me out to a car lot to get me a car and like it was like a lesson. You know, he was teaching me a lesson about. How, <laughs> but I mean, I think that's not. I don't think I think that falls within the range of like normal parental uh guidance you know it wasn't like we were in the market and he was trying to like talk down the person at the department store or something right right um, but you know i i have friends i have people i know i think it's like a, it's a personality thing like some people um they love to get a deal and yeah sure like i have a friend yeah. like a good buddy of mine who will take like he'll cut out coupons and go to the grocery store and, and like revel in getting like 25 cents off his carton <laughs> of milk Right, and, right. And, and there's nothing wrong with that on its face, but like I'm just like, my God, just buy the milk, you know. <laughs> like <laughs> Right, right. Uh I can't do it, you know. I don't know. I don't, I'm too lazy or it just doesn't matter to me enough or or whatever it is, but I just uh I'm not wired that way. I used to work in a bookstore in New England. Uh it's it was a chain, I don't know if it's still around, probably not, called Walden Books. Do you have any memory of that? Sure, yeah. It was in the malls when where I grew up. Anyway. Okay, okay. Where did you grow up? Uh Midwest. So like Wisconsin, okay. Wisconsin and Indiana. I remember the Walden books at the uh, mall that I that I spent so much time at. <laughs> during, it, right, right. During my adolescence in Indiana, because there was nothing else to do, would go to the mall. Right, right. That was how it was in New England. Uh, and I used to go to the mall every day to work at the Walden books in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. I think it was actually in a little town farther north, but I never got the geography straight. It was Pittsfield, as far as I was concerned. The least the if you get, ever get a chance to go to Pittsfield, turn it down. <laughs> um, you just don't ever want to go there. I can't stand that place. Okay. Anyway, uh, um, when I worked there, there was a um, a guy who came in and tried to bargain. Uh, he was from Europe, and maybe that's where I get my my the notion that all of them are like that. I, that's <laughs> terrible. But uh, he tried to talk me down in um, buying a. Oh God, what was it? I think it was a Tom Clancy uh, hardcover. <laughs> he wasn't going to pay more than twelve ninety five for it. He just wasn't. And he, he kind of got, like I thought, okay, what if we do need to sell the book? We've got a 40% markup on these things. What, what could it hurt? And I was an employee. I wasn't a manager or anything. 
Um, but I came to my senses and said, no, I'm sorry. The price is twenty two ninety five or whatever it was. It is what it is. But he did have a point. It is. He did have a point, maybe, you know. Right, right. Well, that's the thing. Is that like I find myself, uh, you know, sort of turning my nose up at people like my buddy. I'm thinking of my buddy who just like will squeeze every penny. <laughs> And you're waiting in line while he's pulling this coupon out or whatever. But at the same time, you know, it's just, there's something to be said for uh, – there's a certain intelligence in it as well, you know. He knows, oh, sure. He knows he can get a deal. He knows he's getting screwed and he's not going to stand for it, you know. And he's saving money. Yeah, and he's saving money, which I, I could stand to do myself. So um, right. you were in Massachusetts for uh, – your dad's work went, like moved you there. Is that what it was? Yes. Um, it was uh, – his job in in uh, uh, there was more uh, what's the word I want uh, clerical not clerical he just worked he worked in an office white collar he didn't need to necessarily be around a uh, um, an oil refinery or a carbon black plant or anything like that he just worked he was an accountant mm-hmm. and and uh, I guess still would be if he wasn't retired um, and he still likes to account he he does my taxes every year for me and just relish cannot wait for April to roll around so he can help me with my taxes. In fact, he starts in December. Um, let me know what your, what your ending inventory is. I would like to do your taxes this year. He loves it. Um, anyway, uh, yes, we did live in uh, New England. I th- we went right there from Iran in 76, and I was there through 83, so junior high school and high school. Okay, so you graduated high school in Massachusetts. Uh, what did yeah. you, what does your mom do? Like I'm trying to figure out where you get your your writerly bent. Uh, she is. I think that she is a very good writer, but she won't show anybody. She won't write a memoir. I've been telling her she needs to do that. Um, uh, but um, so I don't. I don't really know where it comes from. My dad is a brilliant writer, um, but he doesn't like to do it and has no interest in doing something creative. He can just write killer uh, business letters. I remember one that he. Uh, wrote to a university that had turned one of my sisters down on upon application. And, uh, um, he wrote a fiery letter defending, uh, my sister. And I, I, I know she's going to hate that I mentioned this, that she didn't get into a university. I'm really sorry. Just, I'm really sorry, sister. <laughs> I won't use your name. I'm really sorry. But the letter was uh, brilliant, irrefutable. Uh, it was like Samuel Johnson or something. It's just uh, uh, you couldn't say no. And they didn't. They they changed their mind and let her in. They did? Yeah. Oh, my God. That makes it a great story then. He actually... Yeah. Yeah. It's, it was quite a letter. We still have it someplace. But you know what? I think that's an example of the squeaky wheel getting the grease. Like sometimes in, in life, that, that really is the case. Like if you uh, – like most people wouldn't do that. You know, they wouldn't, knock, right. they wouldn't knock on that door again or fire back. And I like when stuff like that happens. I do too. I do too. Uh, so, okay. So you leave uh, high school in Massachusetts and then did you get the hell out of there? Yes, I tried to anyway. I went to, um, uh, I went to, uh, I tried to go to college for a couple of months, but that didn't work out. I got sick. Um, uh, depression is what, um, is what they call it now. I don't know what they called it back then, but it was, it was it was ultimately depression. That was the diagnosis. Finally, where did you go to college? Um, uh, I went uh, to the university. I'm sorry. Uh, I was going to say University of Virginia, but I didn't get into that college. Um, <laughs> did, your dad, college did, your dad of, write, did your dad write a fiery letter to the University of Virginia or no? He did not. Okay. He did not. 
but I went to uh, College of William and Mary in uh, Williamsburg, Virginia. All right, all right. And so, and, um, what year was this? This was mid eighties. Yes, that was, this was in late nineteen eighty three. Okay, was John Stewart there when you were there? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. We're probably about the same age. I didn't even know he went there. He did. I believe he did. That's something to look up. That is something to look up. For all yeah. you, you know, he could have been. Uh, he could have crossed your path, but uh, you were there for only a couple of months. Yes, uh, I think until uh, yeah, it was around Christmas time, I think. And uh, I had a kind of. It was kind of a psychotic depression. I really wasn't in my right frame of mind, um, to say the least. And they they kind of uh, took me to a hospital, and then to back home to a hospital in New England so I could, my parents could be nearby. And uh, that was the beginning of about, I don't know, 12 years of psychiatric hospitalizations. Holy shit. Um, which finally ended in, uh, um, I guess, the mid-90s. My God. Okay. So did, what was what, pre, what prefaced the initial hospitalization? Like, were you like a normal college kid? Were you drinking a lot or doing drugs and then this sort of like catalyzed it or was it just like what were you depressed about i don't even know i think it was purely uh a, a clinical chemical depression i don't think i was particularly i was i had a girlfriend um i didn't uh drink or drug not out of any any uh um principle or anything i just never got into it um and so i guess i just kind of fell apart um and because medications tended to uh work on me at least for a little while so I, it's um, it was just a clinical thing. Holy shit. Okay. So were you, were you like bedridden and then like what happened to get you into the hospital? Like did somebody report it or? Oh, um, they just, someone found me crying in bed or something like that. I, it's kind of embarrassing. I don't really remember, yeah. but I, I threat after that I did, when I was in the hospital, I was committed there. I couldn't leave and I rebelled against that in, immediately. And that kind of brought me out of the depression a little bit, but I threatened suicide over and over and over again. And they just didn't know what to do with me. Oh my God. Okay. So, um, and then you go into a, like a decade or so where you're, um, like what, seeing a psychiatrist and then getting medication. Yes. Yes. And medication and other, and other anti, uh, uh, antidepressant treatments. And, uh, like what? Like like talk therapy, or do you mean like other like chemical, like pharmacological treatments? Yeah, both of those. There was some talk therapy which I loathed. Um, I didn't have anything to say, <laughs> uh, but also uh, ECT, um, electroconvulsive therapy, shock treatment is what they call it. You did that. Um, yes, and that was very effective for me, and I would recommend it to people that are seriously that have a serious. Uh, uh, clinical depression. Its drawback is that it doesn't last very long. It only lasts for a couple of weeks or so, maybe not even that long, but often it, just long enough to get you on medication and talking and, and participating your own, in your own recovery. Interesting. Um, like a, an ECT like that, that's kind of like a, a memory eraser, doesn't it? Like clean. Oh sleep? my God, is it ever? In fact, I wonder now if my memory problems, which I think are untypically serious, uh, um, have something to do with that because I had quite a few of them. Okay, and, and so what uh, I mean, you're like uh, I'm going by like what I've seen in movies or whatever, but it's like you're on the like what do you rem do you remember it like you're on the table and they put like a stick in your mouth or <laughs> yeah uh, I don't know if they put a stick in in your uh, in my I don't know if they did that or not that, some, side of, they some, may, sort of, yeah. some sort of tray you know so you can't bite your tongue or whatever so you can't bite your tongue off right I don't know if they did that or not oh. um, they put you out they give you general anesthesia 
um, you're under only for, I don't know, maybe an hour at the most. And they do the, do the treatment. Um, there are two kinds. There was, um, unilateral and bilateral depended. They would do one lobe of the brain or the other or both. And I'm not quite sure what I got. Um, but that the, it might've been, I, I don't really know, but I did, I remember the experience, but waking up, I couldn't even remember my own name and that, that would come back after an hour or two though. Yeah. It was no fun. Very weird and a terrible tooth splitting headache. Oh my God. Awful. Yeah. All right. And so, but the, but you, it got you back on your feet. You got to the point where you could start to medicate and, and recover. Yes. Yes. I, I had several series of those and they worked every time. And you, um, you were in New England for the duration of this like decade or did you move down to Texas in the middle of this? No, it was, uh, I was in uh, New England almost the whole time. Okay. And so uh, you, were you writing? No, no. I didn't really start writing till uh, my mid-30s uh, when I moved to Austin, probably 17, 16, 17 years ago. All right. And, and so um, what was your uh, – like? How, were you making a living or were your folks just taking care of you while you were going through all this? Uh, folks were helping a lot. Um, I would get jobs now and then, like the Walden books uh, was one a job during a, uh, during a healthier period. Uh, I was in a hospital for a couple of years um, in western Massachusetts. It was south of Pittsfield, but they had an open door policy. You weren't locked in like most places. For for two, and you could go a couple and, years. Yeah, for like I think it was two years. I think two and a half years, a little more. Holy shit! And so it was that's where you lived. That was where I lived. Yeah. And what was, that was your, where I lived. What was your daily routine like? I mean, aside from maybe leaving for work or to like visit family or whatever, like were you just in treatment during those days? Uh, yeah, there was therapy, there was talk therapy every weekday. Um, I loathed that. I couldn't stand my doctor. He just never did anything. Um, all he was, he'd just sit in this giant, uh, ergonomic chair that made all kind of, it squeaked a lot. And he sat, uh, um, with a large picture window just behind him. So I never really saw anything but silhouette. Uh, I don't even, I can't even recall his face now wow. or his name. Um, but yeah, that would, would, uh, talk therapy every day and then you just you just fuck off you just lounge around there's really nothing to do except smoke and play chess that was that's all i really remember and read i did a lot of reading i was going to say it's a shame you weren't writing back then it seems like the ideal place to work <laughs> no kidding no kidding um there were a couple of famous writers that that uh were were that lived there also i cannot remember them but i had the room right next to judy garland's room no shit yeah, yeah. And you She'd don't remember, the there, 40s, were, I guess. there were famous writers there when you were there? No, not when I was there. There was a, uh, a, a known writer, someone who had published two or three books, and his name was... And I don't know what he does now. I think he might write children's books. But he was there when I was there. Okay. And to me at the time, that seemed like a, you know, a famous writer, someone to be... Uh, oh, my God, I should not have used his name. I'm really sorry about that. I should not have used his name. All right. Um, anyway, uh, but yeah, that seemed like a big deal to me, um, and, and still is, I guess. I really looked up to him. Maybe some some part of me did want to be a writer at that time. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. It seems like it's. I mean, it seems like for most of us who do this, it's all. It was, it was always there somehow. You know. Right. Even if right. even if the actual writing didn't begin until later. So. Um, in terms of like your recovery and you getting out of the hospital and moving to Texas and, 
um, starting to live uh, like a more normal civilian life or whatever. Right. Like, what was it that that finally did it? I don't remember exactly, but I'm pretty sure it was a, a medication. And I don't remember which one it was, but something really worked for me. Uh, medications would usually work for me, but just not for very long. Um, maybe a couple, three months, and then they'd fizzle out. And that's common, actually. Um, uh, but then I got a medicine, I, I'm pretty sure is what, what happened, that just gave me an opportunity to, uh, to, to actually to leave. I went to New Orleans from there um, feeling pretty good. Okay. And I lived in New Orleans for two or three years. What did you do? And, and, you, and is that where you got into antiquarian books? Because I, I know my family's from Louisiana, so I know New Orleans. And I know, oh, really? Yeah. Uh, and there's some great antiquarian bookshops in the quarter. I know that. Yeah, yeah. Octavia Books and uh, Crescent City Books. Um, I can't remember the names of the others. There are a bunch of them, though. Yeah, there's like one on St. Charles, I think. If I'm remember, yes, if I'm yes. remembering, is that correctly. Maple Street Books? Maybe I don't know. I always go in there whenever I'm there, and uh, they have some great. Yeah, they have some nice first editions and whatnot. You know, they right, have right. Nice little display window. So, um, is that? And you were working where in New Orleans? Is it at one of these shops or? Um, for the first six months or seven months I was there, I worked at a casino. I worked at Harris Casino, which sure. was uh, ultimately shut down by the city for some. I don't really. I never really understand it, but the, I think that someone at the casino was skimming like a million dollars a day off of what of monies that should have gone to the city of New Orleans. Wait, they closed um, Harris. They, this was the, an original one that was at the uh, um, Louis Armstrong Hall, I think it was called, or something like that. All right. This was before the one that's there now. Okay. Um, I was gonna say it was called and even then. It was called the temporary, the temporary casino, and it was just open for six months until the National Guard shut it down. <laughs> And I found out on TV, I was I was fixing to go to work and was watching TV, and I, there was a news thing, and it was all these the National Guard surrounding the casino, so people couldn't get back in. It was it was weird. New Orleans is a weird place. As it you, is. I'm sure you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's something that's very. I mean, it's in a very gothic city, and it, like a very detectable, uh, like very palpable sense of history. Whenever I'm there, you know. Yes. Yes. I, I think we're not the only ones that feel that too. A lot of people have just become intoxicated by the place, literally. Sometimes. Well, there's nothing else. Uh, like, I mean, there's really nothing else like it in the states. Yes, um, yeah, I really, think you're right. And really, in the world, I mean, you know, it's a, it's a, it's especially pre-Katrina, but I mean, even post-Katrina, it's a very um, rich amalgam of uh, cultures and the musical history, and then yeah, you know, there's also um, you can I can also feel you know all of that racial stuff and the old like Civil War history and pre Civil War history, right, right. You know, you can sense all of that there, and uh, I don't know, it's a fascinating place. It, I have a, a strong tie to it, you know, for family reasons, and right, you know, right. I have kind of like a nostalgia for it, but you know, um, it's hard for me to imagine living there. Did you um you said you lived in the midwest what uh, what brought you there from uh, um, from Louisiana? Well, my folks moved uh, out of Louisiana before I was born, so it was just oh, my, okay. my dad, okay. my dad's job you know just took them to Wisconsin and then actually out to San Francisco when I was really young and then back to Wisconsin and then to Indiana again or to Indiana where I went to okay. junior high and high school, so I was completely removed from it but grew up going down there every year to visit family. So Sure, sure. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. So, and so you had your you had, you had your fair share of trips to New Orleans and Oh god, yeah. I mean every yeah. like, at least once a year, at least. Right. Um, oh, that's great. 
So it was. Um, have you been there since Katrina? Oh yeah, many times. And uh, I have not, and I'm I'm sure the the book tour is going to go through New Orleans. Um, I think to to uh, for the Tennessee Williams Literary Festival. It will be there at the same time, and I think we're going to do a reading or a panel or something. Well, um, I'll tell you, one of the most uh, devastating things I've ever done was going on a drive with my godfather, my uncle Elmore. <laughs> Uncle Elmore, okay. Uh, yeah, he's uh, he's old school, Cajun. And, uh, wow, he's really? Lived in, he's lived in New Orleans, uh, speaks French, you know, like the whole ball of wax. And um, But he has, uh, he's lived in New Orleans his whole adult life. And um, I remember after Katrina hit, I was down there, and, uh, you know, he picked me up at the airport. Mm-hmm. I forget what it was. But we went driving around. He showed me the destruction. And, like, it's impossible watching it on television to get – uh, an accurate feeling for like just how huge and how complete the devastation was. It's like a nuclear bomb went off. Like the the like for miles and miles and miles, like farther than your eye could see, everything was leveled or gone. Oh, I can't even imagine that. It's shocking. Like just driving, yeah. like you're just like, when does it end? When does it end? And he's like, it goes for you know another hour. You know. <laughs> Um, wow. So that was, must have been a huge feeling of loss for you. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, just a huge feeling yeah. of loss. But, you know, my my cousin and her husband lost their house. Like, you know, it was one of those houses out in, like, Metairie where, like, you know, it was underwater. And then, like, they came back and their entire house was filled with mud. And there was, like, a car on their roof and or a boat. or You know, it was, like, that sort of thing. But um, <laughs> it was, you know, it was surreal. It was totally surreal. And, um, yeah. you know, they're still cleaning up. I mean, it's not – like as as you well know, New Orleans is not exactly – the most organized city, uh, infrastructurally. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. You could say that. Yeah. And like politically. So like, it's just, you know, I'm sure that, and it was just a, a spectacularly huge job. So, um, right. You know, there's still a lot of blighted neighborhoods out there that are waiting to be, uh, restored or something, but, mm-hmm. um, it was a, it was a shocker. That whole thing was just such a disaster. It was, uh, it's hard, no kidding. It was, it was heartbreaking. Yeah. So, um, you were there for a couple of years. You started to get into antiquarian books. Is this where you started to get into book binding? Yes, it is. Um, I was uh, I was in a bookstore one time uh, in Dauphine Street Books, I think it was. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that was it. And I was in there gawking at their beautiful first editions of Walker Percy. And, uh, and the, there was a James Joyce in there that I remember particularly a little bitty, his poems, Penny Each. Um, I don't remember when he published that. It's a tiny, tiny little fragile booklet. Um, and it's, it's uh, I, I just noticed a few days ago that there's one uh, for sale by a dealer. Oh, what's that? I can't remember their name. Um, but it was, it was, it had an autograph and a dedication by Joyce to someone else. I can't remember who, but it was $40,000. Whoa. And uh, it, this, at this, this particular copy that I saw, I don't know if it was, uh, that that good that important, but I remember thinking I can never afford this, and I God, I wish I could have it. Um, and but in that same shop while I was there, uh, I came across a um, a book on bookbinding, just a very basic book. I think it was called The Craft of Bookbinding um, by uh, Manly Bannister. That's an unforgettable name. <laughs> and uh, um, I picked that up and just and just tried to do it as a hobby. And uh, really got into it. Really, really enjoyed it. And so, I mean, I don't know where do you even start. Uh, like, what do you do? Just get some glue and some book. What? Yeah, get a damaged book, 
Um, or if you want to make a, just a new blank book, you start with a bunch, just fold a bunch of paper and sew it together. Um, and th- in this particular book, he gave you a list of the tools that you need, and you need very little. You need glue, thread, cardboard, and cloth, uh, and really there's not much else after that. Okay, but wait, sewing pages together, are you literally just needle and thread sewing these things, or do you have to have some sort of machine? No, it's uh, by hand. Um, you know, b- of course, books... Uh, that are produced today are some are sewn by a machine, but um, for restoration and if you want to just do a handmade book, of course it's just you just sit there with a needle and thread. Oh my god! Okay, it's fun. It's very satisfying. Sure, yeah, and like the finished product has got to be a, it's got to be a good feeling. Yes, it really is. It really is. I still have some of the books that I um, bound or or rebound, and uh, they they feel nice. They it. I feel like I feel a sense of accomplishment when I see them. Well, sure, and like the the thing too is like, like personally, I'm just I'm not a very crafty person. I'm not good with mm-hmm. I'm not good with tools. <laughs> really? No, I wish I were. It's like I you know I feel like it's a strike against me in the uh, in the manly category or in like oh I'm not, you have hammered thumbnails and, yeah. and I'm no manly banister. Um, right, right. Well, who is? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> That's an awesome name. I hope that really is real. Manly Bannister. I, I think it is. I think it is. All right. Um, I think it's Bannister with one N if you ever care to look him up. Okay. And then um, as as far as like getting from book binding into actual writing, you said you you didn't start writing until you were in your mid-30s. Yes. Um, I was living in, in Austin, actually. I had done some writing before. I remember when I was in one of the hospitals, there was a typewriter there, and I tried to write poetry and a short story. Um, that didn't work out. Um I don't remember what happened to that, but it just, it was, I remember it being awful, even at, even while I was writing it. And, and, uh, so there must've been some bug in there that wanted to write, but it didn't come out until I came to New Orleans. This was probably, uh, late nineties. Yeah, I think late nineties. And, uh, I was, I, I wrote a, um, just for fun. I wrote a fairy tale for my girlfriend, Annie, um, just to amuse her. It was a birthday present, I think, or, or a Valentine's Day, maybe. And I'd been reading a lot of Grimm's fairy tales and uh, at the time. They're so weird. Those things are so bizarre and so dark and bloody. And and, and they all have a... Uh, you're not really sure what they're about, if they've got a moral or, or what. They The endings never make any sense. Um, Sounds and like my I thought, <laughs> Really? Yeah, me too. <laughs> me too. I have terrible endings. Uh, and... And so I thought that would be a fun thing to send up. So I I uh, just wrote a fake one called The Corkmaker's Tale about a guy that had um, uh, 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 a goiter that could tell the future, and he carried it around in a in a wheelbarrow. It was that so is, big. That is as a uh, as a Valentine's Day presents go. That is about as romantic as it gets. Right Isn't now. it? Don't you think? Yeah, I got a good response. I was gonna say. Uh, but Annie liked it, and that she was encouraging to write. She encouraged me to write more, so I, I did, and kind of got started to uh, realize that I liked to do this. And um, novel a novel came from that. Not about. It wasn't about the. the it wasn't a fairy tale. No goiters. Um, no, no goiters, no goiters. <laughs> there was a um, a missing finger in it, though. I think that's all right. That's all right. This is the the my first novel of two, um, called Fever Chart, and that one was set in New Orleans. Okay, and is that McSweeney's as well? Yes, yes. So, how did you get it hooked up with McSweeney's? How did you get published? Oh, uh, well, I sent them. A, I had been sending my no, uh, the manuscript of Fever Chart out to agents and some publishers with nothing but. 
rejections. I know that's an old story, and uh, and but I just had a drawer full of them. And one of them I remember was it was just a mimeograph sheet with reasons listed why they might have rejected your book, a long <laughs> list of them, and next to each one of them it was a little box. And the person that, that read or read part of the book or so just checked off four or five of them, and that was a rejection slip. No, no, nothing, nothing else. Uh, the a real touch. prize. Yeah. Um, I finally I did send I sent it to McSweeney's as one of the publishers, and uh, they had it for I just you know I figured no go. Uh, they had it for I think um, a little more than a year, and I got a call one day. Um, I think it was an email first and asking if I, if the book was still available. And I said, yes, it, yes, yes, it certainly is. And, uh, they said, well, we're thinking about maybe, you know, taking this on. And I feel like I had to convince him just plead, well, plead. Who, who was it? It was, uh, my, the, ultimately the editor of that novel, Eli Horowitz. Okay. And, yeah, uh, sure. He's been on this program. What's that? He's been on this show. I, oh, he has. I, yeah, he's a, he's a great guy. Yeah, okay. So Eli called you up, and then you had to kind of like close the deal. <laughs> kind of, yeah. You, yeah. Had to, you had to call upon your antiquarian book-selling skills to... That's right. Yeah, That's right. Bring it I, uh, I really did get the feeling that I had to sell it to him and that I had to beg and plead. He, he seemed genuinely uh, um, ambivalent. Is that the right word? Sure. Um, and so I had to convince him. But ultimately, they, they, did, they did take it. Wow, and the rest Luckily. is history. And now you've got a second book out with them. Yes, this is the this is the second one, um, and uh, I, hopefully there'll be there there will be more. Are you um, working, I, working I, on anything? Yeah, I'm working on a children's book. It's actually finished. It's a middle grade reader, so for ten to twelve year olds, about a it's about a uh, um, an underground, huge, a vast underground hospital that uh, caters only to supernatural creatures. So if you're uh, a vampire or something with a, you know, with a tooth abscess, this is where you go. So <laughs> or, or a goiter. I just want a goiter. Or a goiter. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, if you're a cork maker with a goiter, and so that one is uh, being considered right now by a couple of publishers, but I don't know if anything's actually going to happen with that. And you got to do um, an agent, or are you just doing this all on your own? Uh, I have an agent. Um, and he's been—he's just been great. He's uh, who is he? Uh, his name is um, uh, Adam Eaglin, and he's with the Elise Cheney Agency in New York. Sure, yeah. And he—he uh, um, uh, he was at when I met him. Um, what what happened was I, I finished the second book, and the editor for that one, um, uh, Adam Kreffman, um, uh, I, I, I asked him, you know, do I need it? I didn't have an agent at the time. I said, do I need an agent? And he said. I don't know, but here's a, here's the name of one. So that's how it came about. Um, I didn't have to really do, do very much work. I was very, very incredibly lucky. Well, and, uh, it takes, and a, little, it takes then, a little bit of that, but you also got to show up, you know, you got to send the manuscript off and you gotta, you know, you gotta be, you gotta be there first. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. I still feel just extraordinarily lucky that it, that it happened at all. Not just the agency that, uh, you know, just getting anything in print at all. Um, it was the highlight of my life that day I talked to Eli. Wow. That's awesome, man. Well, I, uh, I congratulate you on, uh, both. Well, books. thank you. And, uh, it's been really fun talking with you. I appreciate you, uh, spending the time and I wish you all the best of luck with the parallel apartments. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that, uh, you're not going to, you're not going to get uh, pilloried 
uh, or overly pilloried. <laughs> oh, I hope you're right. I hope you're right. Packs, uh, of, packs of angry readers and critics are not going to show up at your house. How about that? Oh, thank God. I really hope so. Uh, but on the other hand, it might be kind of fun. You never know. It could be something to write about. Well, Brad, thank you very much. This has been a lot of fun. Um, I was very nervous about it, but I felt totally at ease talking to you. It's been great. Awesome. Well, I, uh, I appreciate the time, and, and again, good luck. Okay, thank you very much. All right, there you have it, folks. That is Bill Cotter. Go get his novel. It's called The Parallel Apartments. It is due out for McSweeney's on February 11th, 2014. You can pre-order it uh, right this very moment, and you can find Bill online over at the Twitter where his handle is at William Cotter. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as usual, for the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Thanks to Welcome Back Cotter for the uh, theme song music. I hope that's okay, guys. Uh, go get your free audiobook download from Audible. Don't forget, folks, a free audiobook download at Audible. Just go to uh, the website audibletrial.com slash other people. Again, that's www.audibletrial.com slash other people. Jesus Christ, did I mangle that. You know what you you know what to do if you want to do that. And don't forget about the app either, the free official Other People app available now for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. Uh, just do that. You get the app, and then you sign up for premium so you can access every single episode, all 248 episodes right there, an incredible goldmine of literary entertainment. Okay, so I feel good about things, though I should say I feel a little, uh, a little bit queasy at the moment. Because I, I, I think it's because I've been taking uh, oil of oregano. <laughs> because I read somewhere online recently that it helps your body defend against uh, illness. And of course, for a long time, <clears throat> excuse me, now I'm developing a cold. For, <laughs> for long time listeners of this program, you will, you know, you guys know that I'm highly susceptible to any kind of health trend. So I'm now on this kick where I'm taking oil of oregano, and I think it might be taking me or making me queasy because uh, I'm taking too much which is another way of saying that I feel a little bit sick uh, from taking something that is supposed to make me not feel sick. Please remember that Truman Capote wrote while lying down and that Wittgenstein died of prostate cancer. That's it for now. Thanks to Bill Cotter. Thanks to McSweeney's. Thanks to you, especially, for listening. Who did I forget to thank? Uh, how about the Sweat Hogs? Arnold Horshack, RIP. I'll talk to you guys again soon. I've got some good shows coming up, some very compelling guests. Uh, who are they? You'll have to stay tuned. I'm not going to tell you who I have coming up. You're going to have to live in mystery. I apologize. Uh, are you still watching the Super Bowl? Is that what's happening? Are you having an other people slash Super Bowl party? Are you a willing participant in America's most important advertising holiday? Which, uh, it will come as no surprise, coincides with a celebration of our barbaric national pastime. Do you like how that works? The best commercials of the year are most violent national pastime i think i uh i don't know what the fuck i'm trying to say <laughs> always at the end of this show i get into this where i'm trying to make some sort of like a dry witty banter some sort of weird elliptical ending where it just you know somehow comes together or leaves you on the edge of your seat or you're in the midst of a chuckle and then suddenly 